Welcome to Worldly, Vox's guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Jen is out, so Zach and I are joined by our friend Dara Lind from The Weeds. Hey, Dara. Hello. So on Monday, a man named Alec Manissian plowed his van into a crowd of pedestrians in downtown Toronto. He killed 10, and he wounded dozens more. And Canadian law enforcement found a Facebook post he wrote just before the attack. It called for revolution and appraised the mass murderer he saw as an inspiration. But here's the thing. Manissian didn't belong to ISIS. He wasn't praising Osama bin Laden. He was a member of something else entirely, an online subculture called incel, short for involuntarily celibate. The man he praised, Elliot Roger, had killed six women in California in 2014 and wrote a long anti-woman manifesto. Today we're going to talk about what incel is, what incel isn't, and whether we need to change how we think about terrorism. So, Zach, you have a very good, very long piece about incel Walk us through. It's an internet subculture, but a very specific kind of internet subculture. Right. So incel people hang out on a variety of different places, right? They have a dedicated subreddit called Brain Cells. They have a specialized part of 4chan, which is like a super trolly, cruel internet website. They even have their own websites, like incels.me. So they talk to each other. And what unites them, as the name suggests, is a shared sense of frustration and alienation with not being able to have sex, not being able to convince women to have sex with them. These are virtually all heterosexual males, with a few exceptions. And for some of them, this is kind of like a self-help group. It's just they're expressing deep sadness and alienation. But for others of them, it curdles into this kind of deep misogyny and angry resentment at the rest of the world. And to get a sense of that, it's worth listening to this clip from uh, a man who basically is a member of Incel but talking about it on YouTube. He's sitting in his car. This is part of like a 20-minute long rant. And here's, you know, a bit that really encapsulates their ideology. These women, you know, from 14 years old, from 15 years old, once they've got their sights on a genetically superior male, I mean, that's it. That's what they want. That's what they get. So I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you know, shit's going to be really fucked up. <laughs> you're probably never going to probably never going to be in a happy relationship that you're looking for. So the genetically superior part is really key to their ideology. They believe that they, for reasons of birth, cannot have sex. They think that they are ugly or short or a variety of different physical descriptors that prevent them from ever being able to convince someone to have sex with them. Whereas there's a certain group of men who are born genetically gifted you know, handsome, muscular. They refer to them as chads in their subreddits. And chads, they get all the women. And so a lot of the resentment centers around chad as, as a figure for who they are. But that, one thing that I'm curious about, why, if they have this weird archetype, right, where there's the good-looking, genetically superior man who's getting women, and then there's Stacy, which is the other name they use for the, the slutty women who would only want chads, you know, these good-looking ubermenches, why is the hatred then and the violence, it's women. It's like, let's kill the women, not let's kill the chads. The short answer to your question is misogyny, right? Like, it's not the idea that men deserve sex with women by virtue of being men is a very old one. And so it makes a lot more sense to blame the women, especially because the sexual revolution plays a big role in incel mythology and saying, well, 
it used to be that we could have sex with women who were our genetic equals, but now that there is a certain amount of freedom, everybody wants to go for the chads. You know, women can have sex with whoever they want, and so they are going to go for these most powerful males. It's a weird kind of perversion of Darwinism in a sense. There's a kind of quasi-religious aspect being assigned to just random genetics and sexual selection that makes it seem like this is the only way you can get worth out of your life. It's also, uh, there's like a class system built into it, which makes it feel political, right? Because it's, you know, the chads are seen as the people who have perfect lives. Everything is great. And society is structured to privilege them. To Dara's point about the sexual revolution, their view is that things don't have to be this way. Things were constructed and arranged in such a way to privilege the genetically superior. So when you read incel literature, they distinguish between chads, incels, and then there's the vast majority of people who they refer to as normies short for normal people. Normies are neither chads in the sense that they're sexually successful and, you know, getting whatever they want and not incels because they're having sex. They're, you know, people who are married and living moderately acceptable lives. And their view is is like almost, and one of them literally analogized it to Marxism in a post because the normies are still not the chads. They're not the, you know, the people really benefiting from the way that society is set up. But they need to develop class consciousness and work to overthrow the chads is is one of the different ways that it's been described. This is where the term black pill comes in, right? Yeah, that's a Matrix reference to the scene where if you take a particular pill, then you actually understand that the world is made up. Um, here, it's a sense of, you know, you take the black pill and you recognize your incel status. You recognize that you will never have sex. There is nothing you can do in the current society. And you're doomed to a life of sadness. That's what they call blackpilling. It's too glib, obviously, to reduce anything having to do with gender or violence to The Handmaid's Tale, even though it's back on this week and a lot of us, I think, are watching it in and around Vox. But I was thinking about it last night in connection to this because so much of the violence directed towards women based on sexuality in real life, not like in The Handmaid's Tale, in Iraq and Afghanistan and parts of Africa and parts of the United States, parts of Latin America, pretty much globally, has to do with who the women are sleeping with, but with a sense of sort of male possessiveness. You're my daughter. You slept with a person I don't approve of. I'm going to kill you. You're my wife. You cheated. Whatever. But it's like this really kind of, we will take possession of a woman's choice of who to sleep with. And here it's sort of that, but made slightly different. It's like, we will take possession of who you choose to sleep with. And it wasn't us. And because it wasn't us, we're going to lash out. And it's similar. It comes back down to the same kind of root of like, a woman made a sexual choice. We don't like the choice. Therefore, she'll be punished. But it's a slightly different twist on that same really violent kind of grim And this is why I think it can get really dangerous to joke about incels as like men who can't get laid or to, you know, in some in some cases, I've even seen some joking references to, well, if only a woman would sleep with them out of pity, they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't have these beliefs. They wouldn't have done these things. It's not like we don't have plenty of evidence that sexually possessive violent men, when they do have sex, aren't still sexually possessive and violent. It's all counterfactual. There's no way to say, well, obviously these people would be, you know, domestic abusers, would be date rapists if they were having, you know, if they were in relationships. But it's certainly important, I think, to see this as kind of the flip side of gender violence that exists within the context of relationships, just abstracted because there's not a relationship to be in. Zach, we were talking about this topic yesterday here at Vox, and a point you made that I found very poignant was incel for many people is a place to find solace and support. 
And we should stress that the vast, vast, vast bulk of people who are part of this are not committing acts of violence. But you were mentioning how in many cases people post that they're lonely, they're sad, they're thinking of harming themselves, and then others are trying basically to help them, to sort of comfort them and, and walk them through it. I found that very moving on a personal level, and also it's very important. And I wonder if you could just talk to that part of incel. Yeah, so this came up when I was talking about a post that I read on Brain Cells, their, their Reddit page. And one guy was describing in detail why he was about to kill himself. He just went through all of the slights in life that he had suffered for being physically unattractive and said, that's it. The only true friends I had were the people on this forum. And thank you and goodbye. And all of the people on the subreddit, most of them anyway, were saying, look, I understand that life is difficult for us and it's hard and we're missing something important, but your life still has value. Don't kill yourself. And seeing people try to save someone's life on this, you know, it's the, kind of the opposite of what Alec Manassian was doing. At the same time, and, and, you know, I was talking about this last night with my fiance, who's a scholar of gender and knows this stuff really well. She's like, well, there are lots of other communities or even other websites they could have created that didn't also tolerate the toxic misogyny that happens on the same forum. So why do you need to have the self-help part of this be inextricably intertwined with this horrific misogyny that sometimes turns into violence? Why don't the people who are who are being kind and helpful to these other men secede, denounce the the radical incels? And that's a really good question. I mean, that's kind of happening though, right? Some of the things that you mentioned in your explainer about this are that, you know, the moderate incels really have made an effort to make it more difficult to use these forums to kind of expound the radical violent arm of it. So it's not, instead of withdrawing, they're engaging. And I don't know that we should necessarily assume that that's the wrong strategy, that they shouldn't feel a collective responsibility for the radicals in their midst, right? I'll, I'll tell you it's complicated. Um, when I was scanning through the same subreddit that I found this post about suicide on, I didn't find anyone denouncing misogyny or criticizing other posters for their toxic attitudes towards women in other comment threads. I, I, I didn't see any of that. There are some incel forums that do a better job at policing but, you know, Reddit had to ban the original incel subreddit because the entire thing became too toxic and they couldn't tolerate it anymore. So brain cells is actually an outgrowth of r slash incels, which was the original one. And so it's it depends on the on the specific group, which is why it's again, it's difficult to make generalizations is that different incel forums have different rules and they have different attitudes towards celebrations of violence and even outright calls for violence that you see in some of these posts. So let's zoom out though for a second because I think kind of the core question here in many ways is should we think of what happened in Toronto as a terrorist attack given that incel does not have a political goal in the same way? They're not trying to create a caliphate. They're not trying to take down what they see as a, a Zionist government in the case of Israel or liberal Western Christian government in the case of the United States, they are not somebody who has a leader. There's no incel bin Laden. There's no incel ISIS head like you have uh, when ISIS was still running Iraq and Syria. And so let's talk about that. I mean, is this terror? Should we think of it as terror? Should we think of them as terrorists? So I think there are a few different levels that we could have to this discussion. And I think it's kind of important to start with the fact that the official response from Canada has been that, they, that 
this is not a terrorist attack. And in particular, they were very, very quick to say he's not affiliated with any known terrorist groups. And they've used a code word that's also started getting used when there are instances of mass violence in the U.S. of we don't think this is connected to international terrorism, which is a term that I've seen pop up much more frequently recently. And it seems to me that that's kind of become the way for law enforcement officials to talk about he wasn't a brown dude, he wasn't a Muslim, without actually having to say that. There's obviously this very fraught debate going on in the U.S. and other places right now about when do you call something terrorism when it has political goals that are not tied to Islamic radicalism. This is not as like clearly in that vein as an obvious white supremacist act of violence would be, but the use of international terrorism was used here as there to indicate, well, this isn't what you think of when you think of terrorism because the mental image you have of terrorism is ISIS. Of course, that raises the question, if this is terrorism, isn't it international terrorism? Because there's Little that I can think of is more international than this internet-driven, we now have had incidences of violence in Canada and in the U.S. There is a larger incel anglophone community here. This It seems like if, it's, if there is a terrorist angle to it, international terrorism certainly seems like the right way to describe what happened in Toronto this week. Let's take the sort of textbook definition that scholars use for terrorism, right? They say it is violence directed against civilians. Check. By a non-state organization, check, this guy wasn't affiliated with a government, designed to instill terror, definitely check, to accomplish some sort of political goal, a change in society, check, right? If you read his Facebook post, he says – he praises specifically this concept of the incel rebellion, of an uprising of incels designed to, you know, overthrow the normie Chad regime – and change the way that things are so that they can start having sex, right? That is a political goal. It's not a specific or clear political goal. The idea that, you know, tens of thousands of people who are randomly on the internet across mostly the U.S., Canada, and U.K., as far as I can tell, that those people are going to radically transform the world, you know, it's crazy. But so is the idea of ISIS, you know, conquering Rome, which they've claimed at one point, too. But it's not even – it's – it's as if ISIS were just saying conquering, right? There is no Rome That's here. True. Like I don't think, and you know, this is something that I am getting from from you as much as anything as kind of our resident incel expert. It doesn't seem like there's any vision of what the better society could look like. For all they have this detailed historical account of how the sexual revolution was the problem for them, they they're not explicitly you know, advocating for a return to 19th century sexual morals, they just appear to think that things should be different in some unspecified way. And I think we've talked on this show, and I know on The Weeds as well, about how hard it is when it comes to domestic terrorism and domestic hate groups for law enforcement to figure out what the hell to do with them. And that's hard when it's neo-Nazis, that's hard when it's far-right anti-government militias, and those are groups that are actually organized in many cases specifically dedicated to violence, made up of people who have committed violence in the past. This is not that. Right, So if it's hard to track far-right neo-Nazi groups whose members may be veterans who have access to guns, who talk about gun violence, and even that's difficult, what do you do here? Where, you know, Zach, you were talking about some of the subreddits you went through and some of the forums you went through. Even if you were going through that, if law enforcement had the time or the resources, which they don't, but even if they were, and the vast bulk of stuff they were seeing was either misogynistic but meant to be jokey, misogynistic but supportive, maybe just actually supportive, how, how would you find out the thread that might be the one person in that haystack 
who's willing to commit violence. And then what, even if you found that person, what do you do? I mean, there's no sign that this guy bought a gun. There's no sign that this guy was online kind of Googling, how do you make an IED, which people have done in the past. So it's sort of like there's the conceptual question of are they terrorists? And then there's the practical question of how do you find them? How do you find the one bad apple in that, in that bucket? God, it, it's hard. You know, I spoke to a, a Canadian terrorism expert named Stephanie Carvin yesterday about this. And she said morally, look, it's, it, there's no question that this is terrorism. Politically, I don't want my government to define it as terrorism, which is a really interesting way of describing things, right? Because her view is that if you expand terrorism law to account for a random community, only a tiny percentage of whom is violent online, then you end up giving police powers to snoop on and even stifle legitimate dissent. Like, it's not— it, and shouldn't be illegal for a random frustrated guy to go on a forum and say, man, I wish society was changed so I could have sex, right? The idea that government could be able to arrest somebody for saying that seems creepy and seems illiberal. But at the same time, that's all that Alec Manassian did to give us a hint that he was about to commit an act of mass violence. So – you know, her suggestion is that you look not to, you know, arresting people who are posting on these forums, but to try to address the root cause, which is the sense of loneliness and alienation that these men experience. A lot of them suffer from extreme social anxiety and depression. And you start there with social outreach programs rather than waiting until it's too late and they've already been radicalized by incel. So there's one name here that I think is worth mentioning. So he specifically referenced, he, Alec Manissian, Elliot Roger. Elliot Roger is this man who killed six women in California, wrote a manifesto about how they deserved it. Parenthetically, the father of one of those women then wrote a man, like an online message of his own about his daughter and sort of the fact that she would be murdered for this man's frustration that is, as a father, horrifying, as a human being, horrifying, and, and is very much worth reading so we don't just read what the bad people write. We sometimes should also think about what the victims and, and their families write. But Elliot Roger, the name has a resonance. You know, Dara, you were talking about how these groups try to moderate. In some ways, they try to screen out references to his name. But the reason I mention this is there's a concept among people who study terrorism and violence that kind of names become totemic and that people commit violence because they want to emulate someone else who committed violence, who's seen as kind of a celebrity in that form of violence. So the, the specific case that's often cited because there's research showing this to be true, unfortunately, is a lot of school shooters since Columbine specifically reference Columbine and specifically reference Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. So they see themselves following their footsteps. They say these were the guys who blazed the path. These were the martyrs. These were the sort of heroes. And I think looking at this in the question of terrorism, I wonder if Alec Manissian praised Elliot Roger, you wonder the next person motivated by this movement, are they going to praise Alec Manissian? And then does it just start to build where each one tops the other? And then that one becomes the next name that the other one then cites when they try to figure out how to be bloodier and better. I mean, I think that even just Manissian's attack, the fact that we are currently here having this discussion of how do we deal with this? What are they capable of? How do we figure out when they're going to be violent? In a certain way, we're doing, you know, we have let the incels win. There are, Zach, you pulled out a bunch of posts after this attack that referred to it as life fuel, that praised it. The, among people who were really rooting for this kind of thing, it seems like there's a sense of this is great because instead of it just being a conventional mass shooting, it's something that, you know, anybody could have a car, anybody could do things like this. The goal is to make people feel that anything they do in their normal lives can come back and kill them. That's 
an extremely conventional terrorist mindset. It's also something that you don't even need copycats to do. You just need people responding to an attack as the outgrowth of an ideology and saying, well, there could be more where that came from, which is both true and the kind of thing that leads people to be in a terrorized mindset, which is to a certain extent the goal of terrorism. This is obviously way deeper than just incel itself, but it's very, very hard when you have an extremely internet-aware subculture to figure out the difference between how do we talk seriously about something that can be a threat and how do we avoid giving them what they want. One thing I'll add to the point about totems as well is that's already happening, right? So Elliot Roger doesn't just get mentioned as, you know, as a person. You see abbreviations of ER, at, not just to reference him, but to reference the action that he took. So you see people saying, this is the right way to do an ER, or here's how to think of ERs, right? Here are good ideas for ERs. And you've already seen some incel posters referring to Manassian as St. Alec. They have a whole saint motif going on with various different violent people. Like, the the radicalization of this community is real, and it shows no signs of stopping. And I think we'll close there just with the final very sad observation that we have talked now about a bloody terror attack. I think all of us agree that it's a terror attack. And the response to it in terms of condemnation from this White House has been, for the most part, a very depressing, not terribly surprising silence. Uh, and just really quickly, one last thing. This, this episode had a lot of talks about loneliness and, and sadness and self-harm. So if if you need help, if you're thinking about hurting yourself, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Intercom is the most comprehensive platform for business messaging. It automatically picks the best leads from your site to reach the most valuable prospects, increase efficiency, and grow your business. The Intercom Messenger is customizable to match your brand. It has a home screen that engages visitors with interactive content, has a button to subscribe to newsletters, and offers all kinds of other things you can do before they even start a chat. Intercom's chatbot also qualifies and routes the best leads to your sales team automatically. So you can keep avoiding the vice president of sales, or you could use Intercom. Start for free today at intercom.com slash growth, intercom.com slash growth, intercom.com slash growth. For elsewhere this week, we are shifting tone radically to the incredibly fun, bizarre, and ultimately really politically interesting trip of Donald Trump's best European friend, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, here to Washington, where they hugged, they kissed, they had awkwardly long handshakes, and then they did and said things like this. We do have a very special relationship. In fact, I'll get that little piece of dandruff for little piece. We have to make him perfect. He is perfect. So that is... Literally, the president of the United States <laughs> crushing dandruff. We have a moment of appreciation for we have to make him perfect. He is perfect. He is perfect. Which is the most school picture thing that a United States president has ever said about another well, world leader. Forget school pictures. That's like what you say to someone you're dating in high school, right? Like it should be put on Facebook with like a Photoshopped image with hearts on it. We clearly have different mental models of the Trump-Macron relationship, which I'm excited to get into. The clip is really worth watching because the look of total discomfort slash confusion on Macron's face is wonderful. This whole thing is so weird to me because like they're all chummy, buddy-buddy while Macron was in Washington, but they campaigned against each other. 
Trump all but endorsed Macron's opponent in the French election, the far-right Marine Le Pen, and Macron ran against, like openly against Trump with Barack Obama's support. Yeah, so it wasn't just that Macron was running against Trump in France. It was that Macron, while in Washington, after this awkward dandruff exchange with Donald Trump, went to Capitol Hill, spoke to a joint session of Congress in fluent, very eloquent English, and said things like this. We can choose isolationism, withdrawal, and nationalism. This is an option. It can be tempting to us as a temporary remedy to our fears. But closing the door to the word will not stop the evolution of the word. So you had Macron tell Congress, don't pull out of the Iran deal. Go back into the Paris Climate Accord deal. Don't be protectionist. Don't be anti-free trade. Don't be anti-immigrant. Don't be overly nationalist. Don't close your borders. Don't give in to fear. This is not where Donald Trump is on pretty much any one of those issues. So we talk about Macron. There's a lot about that's kind of silly and goofy. Like the dandruff thing is kind of funny. When he first came and they had the 45-minute handshake is kind of funny. But then you have this, right? Like when you get to brass tacks, you have Macron who is not being bullied. I mean, he's going to Congress in front of the biggest audience you could have in American politics and American government saying, your president is wrong on everything. Right. This isn't a bait and switch. You know, as Zach was saying, the kind of last of the globalists thing has always been part of Macron's brand, always for his very short, you know, time in national and international political life. His whole shtick is that he is a charismatic leader to defend the kind of old liberal order that populist challenges on the left and right seem to be snatching all the energy from. But it's that kind of, I am the charismatic leader and the only person who can maintain this particular political order is what gives him a weird resonance with Trump. And I think it's that kind of duality between their personal styles of politics are quite similar in defense of ideologies that are very much opposed that explains this weird dynamic that we saw this week. What do you mean by personal styles are similar? Do you mean like the— There's a lot of— It is very difficult to be in politics without a very healthy ego. I think Macron and Trump both have that in, you know, maybe greater degree than the average politician. But also, you know, for all that we talk about how Trump is changing the Republican Party, Macron literally won with a party that did not exist before him and hasn't necessarily coalesced into a national party, you know, even with him in office. It's the identification of his personal charisma with a political agenda is maybe even stronger than Trump's, which at least has the kind of intellectual ballast of, you know, for what it's worth, the Steve ba- Steve's Bannon and Steve's Miller of the world. I mean, Macron kind of understood Trump pretty early on, right? So after they had their very awkward seven-hour handshake, Donald Trump went to Paris for Bastille Day. He sat next to Macron. He watched the French military start going down with tanks and marching and looking really patriotic and manly and decided, hey, I want that. And then literally told the Pentagon, let's do a Bastille Day kind of thing here and have tanks going down the streets of D.C., which they said, hmm. There's this we're thing not called posse comitatus. And we're not going to have tanks tear up the streets of D.C., but thank you anyway, Mr. President. But he figured out you have to suck up to the president, as Macron does. You have to sort of physically defer a little bit, like let him be the kind of barrel-chested guy. But you can also, if you do that, maybe nudge him a little bit on policy. You know, maybe you can get him to do things you want him to do. And Macron came this week with a very specific mission to keep Trump from pulling out of the Iran deal. That was when he came, he said, I want this to happen. He used the speech, he used private meetings. Problem is, 
last night as he was getting ready to leave, when he was asked about this, he said, no, he's probably going to leave anyway. So he does not think he won. But in that comment where he said the U.S. is going to pull out, he said something that I found very revealing. He said to a group of reporters, in your country, people say the president is unpredictable. That's not true. He's very predictable. I thought that was such an insightful comment by a, a world leader about our president, more insightful often than we and other leaders here make about our president. If you think about Angela Merkel's first visit to the U.S. last year and how profoundly uncomfortable that was, the reporting around it suggested that she and her advisors were extremely prepared to lay out this very eloquent case for why, you know, actually she and European leaders agreed with Trump, you know, to emphasize the policy common ground between the two of them. But in public, she was extremely uncomfortable with him and, you know, did not have the kind of chummy relationship or anything close to it that Macron has performed. And that didn't work. It extremely didn't work, right? You know, he, it did not stop him from pulling out of Paris. It didn't stop him from, you know, from continuing to saber rattle about Iran. So even if what Macron has done is ultimately not necessarily going to be successful, it seems that not only does he think that the president is predictable, but that he has figured out how you talk to the president to get him to agree with you, and that it's not the conventional diplomacy that Merkel was engaging in. It's this, you know, I'm going to be your friend in front of the television cameras sort of thing. What I find especially striking about that comment is that he said it out loud to reporters, right? It's one thing privately to be like, I have figured out the key to Donald Trump's psyche. It's another thing to say that in a forum that, like, he's not going to not hear about that. To me, it feels like Macron was really frustrated. I wasn't at that meeting. I've just read accounts of it. But after, you know, several days of trying to get the president to change his mind on a policy issue, in which, by the way, basically every expert thinks that Trump is making a rash and, and ill-informed decision if he does, in fact, pull out of the Iran deal uh, as unilaterally as he's discussing – I could imagine why, if you're Macron, you're just fed up and you're saying what you actually think about the American president. Well, I mean, Macron's comments were more nuanced than that. And in terms of what he said to reporters, he said Trump is going to do it because Trump keeps his promises. So he actually painted it as sort of a pro-Trump thing. He said, look at his campaign. He promised to pull out of Paris. He did. He promised to pull out of this. So he will. So he wasn't saying Trump is being insane. He was saying Trump follows his campaign promises. So Trump might hear that and be like, yeah. I do. I'm a man of my word, and I'm glad he realizes it. But Macron did something else that was interesting. He said that he wanted to persuade Trump to stay in Syria. The other big media issue we've been discussing in recent weeks is, will the U.S. withdraw from Syria? And if so, what happens if they do? Macron was trying to persuade Trump not to and feels like he has. And so that's kind of, but it's interesting, Zach, and I agree. Rarely do world leaders come out of meetings and then tell reporters, yeah, I think I got this. Not sure I got this. Let me tell you more about that. Maybe they leak it. But you don't typically have the president of a country come out saying, I think I got him to move on Syria. I didn't get him to move on Iran. You know, we talked about this. I'll talk about that. It was sort of a weirdly intimate debrief from one world leader about another. I mean, I think that that ties into what you were saying earlier, Yoki, about the extent to which Macron thinks he's like hacked Trump, that he's figured out the cheat code to Trump, that we're seeing a lot more candidness, you know, both off the record and sometimes with names attached about, yeah, here's what we do to try to get the president on our side from people who are in contact with the White House in various spheres than we usually see in typical White Houses. And it often has you know, and this is something that you were mentioning, you know, as we've discussed this in recent days, the kind of implicit or explicit vibe of 
well, he's susceptible to flattery, so we flatter him. I think we will end there. Dara, thank you for being on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Wearing your Washington Nationals hat. Soon Are to you going to no, not no, no, be worn much longer by future Cub Bryce Harper? As always, also, thank you to our producers, Bert Pinkerton, Jillian Weinberger, to our social media manager, Julie Bogan. If you like what you heard, we hope you do. Come find us, rate, review, subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and any else you get podcasts. Thanks, all of you. We will be with all of you again next week.